Called and Chosen, a retreat guide on vocation and the calling of St. Matthew. Introduction. Many people nowadays talk about a shortage of priests and dwindling numbers of consecrated men and women. There does seem to be some truth to that kind of talk, at least in some places. While the number of Catholic priests in the world between 1970 and 2012 remained about the same, for example, the number of lay Catholics in the world doubled. And by the early 2000s, 15% of parishes in North America found themselves without a resident pastor, compared to only 3% back in 1960. And while some individual religious orders seem to be thriving, the total number of nuns in the United States has declined by 65% since 1965. Do these alarming statistics mean that God has stopped calling young men and women to serve him and his church with the total gift of self? Certainly not. God himself is the author of the priesthood and the inventor of consecrated life. He wouldn't set up these essential states of life just so they could fail. But maybe something in postmodern culture is making it harder for us to hear and heed God's call to radical discipleship. In this retreat guide on the calling of St. Matthew, we will go back and reflect on what it means for every single one of us to hear and heed the voice of the Lord in our lives. The first meditation will look at some of Jesus' teaching about what a vocation really is. The second meditation will focus on the calling of St. Matthew and its unforgettable depiction in Caravaggio's masterpiece Baroque painting. The conference will give some practical guidelines that we can all use to discern our vocation or to help someone else discern. Let's begin by quieting our hearts and turning our attention to God, who never stops paying attention to us. Let's ask him to pour his grace into our souls as we explore what it means to be called and chosen by Christ. First Meditation, Our Three Vocations. God began the creation of the world with a word. The book of Genesis tells us, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God spoke, and the universe took shape. In each of the six days of creation, God speaks, and his spoken word gives existence to all things. In other words, he calls all things into being. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus is described as the eternal and creative Word of God, who was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him nothing came to be. Throughout all the Gospels, Jesus continues to act in people's lives through His words. He heals the sick and raises the dead back to life with a word. He expels demons and calms the stormy sea with a word, and he invites people to become his disciples and experience the new life of grace that he has brought to the earth by calling them to follow him. The word vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which means to call. The same Latin root is the base of a lot of other English words, like vocal, voice, and vociferous. All of them have to do with speaking forth with communication, with connecting people's hearts and minds through words. In this most basic sense, every single one of us, indeed every person in the world, has a vocation. God speaks his creative word to each one of us. He calls us. He gives us a vocation. Actually, he gives each of us three vocations. First of all, we were called by God into existence. That is our first vocation, to exist, to be present in this wonderful though fallen world, to live and grow and fulfill all our potential in time and in eternity. Existence itself is truly a vocation, a personal call from God. God himself creates every human life. 
He has chosen to involve husbands and wives in this act of creation by making them fathers and mothers. But the spiritual core of every human person doesn't just emerge from its new DNA. It includes a spiritual element that only God provides. Theologians and philosophers describe this as our spiritual soul. It gives us our unique dignity as human beings. Here's how the Catechism puts it in Numbers 363 and 366. In sacred scripture, the term soul often refers to human life or the entire human person. But soul also refers to the innermost aspect of man, that which is of greatest value in him, that by which he is most especially in God's image. Soul signifies the spiritual principle in man. The Church teaches that every spiritual soul is created immediately by God. It is not produced by the parents. And also that it is immortal. The Bible makes many references to this mysterious, direct action of God in the creation of every human being. One of the most beautiful comes from Psalm 139, where the psalmist writes, You formed my inmost being. You knit me in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. This is our first vocation, the first call we receive from God. He calls us into existence in order to put us on the path to eternal life with him in heaven. Our second vocation, our second calling from God, is the call to become a follower of Jesus Christ. To be a Christian, to believe in Jesus, to accept and obey his teachings, to live in friendship with him by committing ourselves to love God and neighbor, this too is a real vocation, a call that every single one of us receives though it comes in many different ways. In recent years, the Church has referred to this second vocation as the universal call to holiness. Holiness is simply living in communion with God through a dynamic, growing friendship with Christ. That is the path of Christian discipleship, and Jesus has called and continues to call all of us to keep following it. It is the only path to the lasting meaning and happiness that we all long for. The Catechism expresses this second vocation as an ongoing call in each one of our lives. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. He calls man to seek him, to know him, to love him with all his strength. The Second Vatican Council described it more completely in its Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium. All the faithful of Christ, of whatever rank or status, are called to the fullness of the Christian life and to the perfection of charity. They must follow in his footsteps and conform themselves to his image, seeking the will of the Father in all things. They must devote themselves with all their being to the glory of God and the service of their neighbor. So this is our second vocation, simply to be authentic Christians, seeking to know, love, and follow Jesus more and more every day. God calls us into existence, our first vocation. And then, because of our fallen nature and this fallen world in which we live, he calls us to become followers of Christ, joyful missionary disciples of the Lord, our second vocation. But we each have a third vocation as well. God calls us to serve him and share in the church's mission from a particular state of life. The Catechism identifies three general states of life hierarchy, laity, and consecrated life. These share equally in Christian dignity, but complement each other in how they serve the Church's unity and mission. Members of the hierarchy of the Church are clergy who receive the sacrament of holy orders, bishops, priests, and deacons. Through that sacrament, they are called and empowered by God to become ministers by whom, as the Catechism puts it, Christ himself unceasingly builds up and leads his church through the offices of governing, teaching, and sanctifying. Members of the laity, either married or single, also share in those offices because they too are members of Christ. But they do so in a different way, 
since their special vocation, as the Catechism explains, involves engaging in temporal affairs and directing them according to God's will, discovering or inventing the means for permeating social, political, and economic realities with the demands of Christian doctrine and life. Members of the Church in the consecrated life, members of religious orders, for example, can be either clerics or laypeople. They follow a call from God to formally profess what are known as the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity in celibacy for the kingdom of God, and obedience. Through this profession, as the Catechism puts it, consecrated men and women are moved by the Holy Spirit to follow Christ more nearly, to give themselves to God who is loved above all, and pursuing the perfection of charity in the service of the kingdom, to signify and proclaim in the Church the glory of the world to come. In the conference that concludes this retreat guide, we will dig into how someone can discern the state of life to which God is calling them. And in the second meditation, we will contemplate how one of history's great artists envisions the call of God in our lives. But for now, let's take a few moments to reflect prayerfully on God's wonderful and generous gift to us through all three of our vocations, the call to existence, the call to Christian discipleship, and the call to serve the Church in a particular state of life. The following questions and quotations may help your meditation. Questions for personal reflection and group discussion. How firmly do I believe that God himself called me into existence? How does it make me feel to think that my very being is the result of a loving, creative word from God? When have I heard most clearly God's call to follow Christ? How have I responded to this call up to now? In what way is God calling me now to follow Christ more closely? How do I want to respond? What habits of my daily life help me to keep hearing God's voice in my soul? What habits of my daily life make it harder for me to hear His voice? What can I do this week to change one of those habits? Three quotations to aid your meditation. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blemish before him. In love, he destined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ, in accord with the favor of his will, for the praise of the glory of his grace that he granted us in the Beloved. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 24. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, cheer the faint-hearted, support the weak, be patient with all. See that no one returns evil for evil, rather always seek what is good, both for each other and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In all circumstances, give thanks. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Test everything. Retain what is good. Refrain from every kind of evil. May the God of peace himself make you perfectly holy and may you entirely, spirit, soul and body, be preserved blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will also accomplish it.
Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 873. The very differences which the Lord has willed to put between the members of his body serve its unity and mission. For in the church there is diversity of ministry, but unity of mission. To the apostles and their successors, Christ has entrusted the office of teaching, sanctifying and governing in his name and by his power. But the laity are made to share in the priestly, prophetical and kingly office of Christ. They have, therefore, in the church and in the world, their own assignment in the mission of the whole people of God. Finally, from both groups, hierarchy and laity, there exist Christian faithful who are consecrated to God in their own special manner and serve the salvific mission of the church through the profession of the evangelical councils. Second Meditation Caravaggio and the Calling of St. Matthew In preparation for the Jubilee of the year 1600, the young Italian artist known as Caravaggio was commissioned to execute a monumental painting of the calling, the vocation, of St. Matthew. More than 10 feet wide and almost 11 feet high, the masterpiece is still on display in the Church of San Luigi in Rome, Italy. As in every great work of art, in this painting, the artist isn't simply illustrating facts. He is giving us an interpretation of the facts. Artists want to communicate not only the event that they depict, but also a meaning behind the event. Through their artistic choices, they express to us their privileged vision of the spiritual values present in the subjects they paint. The more gifted the artist, the more moving and enriching the vision. In the first meditation of this retreat guide, we reflected on our three callings and on the rich, multi-layered significance of what vocation really means. Now, in order to continue plumbing the depths of this spiritual reality, let's contemplate Caravaggio's masterpiece and the inspiring vision behind it. The event that he depicts is taken from one short verse from St. Matthew's own Gospel. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the customs post. He said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. This encounter with Matthew is one of the many vocational encounters we find in the Gospels. Reflecting on how Caravaggio chose to depict this encounter, can give us encouragement and insight as we continue striving to respond generously to God's ongoing call in our own lives. Looking at the painting as a whole, the first thing to strike us is the drama. Baroque painting in general, and Caravaggio's work in particular, tends to focus on dramatic moments. It combines the beauty and realism developed in the Renaissance, the main artistic period before the Baroque, with theatrical movement and stark contrast of light and shadow. And so, instead of offering us calm and gentle scenes for relaxed observation, it draws us into the intensity of conflict and action. Notice, for example, how all the figures in the painting are moving in different ways and directions. Notice how the unseen source of light creates extremely bright patches on their faces and hands, but leaves large swaths of the scene dim or obscure. Notice also how the background of the painting, the wall, the window, the floor, is plain and simple. Caravaggio doesn't want an array of extraneous details to detract from the central drama of Jesus calling St. Matthew. His depiction of this moment in St. Matthew's life is dramatic, but not violent. This is an astute spiritual insight. When God speaks to us, when he sends his word, his call, into our hearts and minds, it can indeed be dramatic. He often invites us to leave behind our comfort zone to follow him more closely. He often surprises us or encourages us towards levels of generosity or mercy that we would never have thought of on our own. And yet, his invitation always flows from his love. And so, he will never violently force us to accept his invitation. Drama, yes. 
Violence, no. The painting presents three main focal points for our attention. The figures of Jesus and St. Peter on our right, the burlap-covered window above Christ's gesturing hand, and Matthew and his business partners gathered around the table to our left. Let's start with Matthew and his business partners. Matthew was a tax collector. This meant that he worked for the Romans, who had occupied Palestine and required the residents there to pay taxes to the Roman Empire. But the Romans were smart. Instead of collecting the taxes directly themselves, they hired locals to do the job for them. These local tax farmers would often abuse their position, collecting more taxes than were strictly required and pocketing the extra for themselves. This is why the Jews of the time considered tax collectors among the lowest of sinners. Not only did they collaborate with the pagan Roman conquerors, but they even cheated their own people for personal gain. The older and younger men on the far left of the painting are behaving just as we would expect tax collectors to behave. They are completely absorbed in counting their money. Even the close presence of the Lord and his direct intervention in their affairs can't disturb their greedy obsession. This is a warning for each one of us. It is possible for us to become so self-absorbed in our earthly projects, goals, and activities that we become deaf to the voice of the Lord. The two young men on the right side of the table, on the other hand, hear Jesus and turn to see who is speaking. The one with his back to us even seems to be reaching for his sword, as if to protect his treasure from an unwelcome intruder. St. Peter seems to be countering that gesture, assuring the young man that sword play will not be necessary. Both of these figures, though they hear the Lord's voice, respond defensively. Jesus is interrupting them, interrupting their business, and they are suspicious of him. They may hear the call, but they are not going to heed it, at least not right away. Many times we are like them, defensive, protective of our own hopes and plans, and suspicious of God's call when it comes to us. Matthew is the figure in the middle with the beard pointing at himself. Unlike the young man at his side, the expression on Matthew's face shows that Christ's call has touched not only his ears, but also his soul. He recognizes that Jesus has looked at him, addressed him, and invited him to become a disciple. And Matthew is surprised. He points at himself as if to say, Me? Really? Are you sure? This shows that Matthew knew about Jesus. He had most likely heard about our Lord's miracles, and maybe even witnessed some. He may also have heard some of our Lord's preaching. And Matthew recognized that as a tax collector, he was, at least in his own eyes, unworthy to become the disciple of such a master. In a certain sense, this is a healthy reaction. After all, which one of us is truly worthy to be a friend, a companion of God himself? We are all mere creatures and sinners, and God is the creator, pure and infinite goodness. And yet, knowing all of that, Jesus still comes into our lives, just as he came right into the room where Matthew was counting his prophets. And he invites us to become his followers, to walk with him and help him build up his kingdom here on earth. God's merciful love is like that. It doesn't wait for us to make ourselves perfect and worthy. It reaches out to us just as we are and continually invites us to the indescribable adventure of Christian discipleship. It often requires us to convert, to decide to leave behind sinfulness and selfishness, but it fearlessly reaches out to us even before that conversion happens. Now let's look at the figures on our right. Jesus and Peter are both still moving, walking past the customs post, just as the gospel describes. This is significant. All three of our vocations are callings to walk with Jesus, to journey with him towards greater holiness and wisdom, to grow humanly and spiritually, to help build his church and spread his kingdom. Authentic Christians are pilgrims and adventurers, not couch potatoes. Notice also how Jesus and Peter are dressed. They are barefoot, and they wear simple robes and tunics, 
Compare that to how St. Matthew and his companions are decked out in fancy and fashionable garb. Following Jesus always means storing up our treasures in heaven, not on earth. It means adorning our souls with the virtues that make us more like Christ, not weighing ourselves down with vain and flashy possessions and conspicuous consumption. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus told Pontius Pilate. Finally, let's look briefly at the real heart of the painting, Christ's gesture right under the large window frame. His arm is extended and his hand points towards Matthew as he invites him to become a follower. The angle of the hand is echoed by the angle of the beam of light that breaks through the darkness and enlightens the face of St. Matthew. God's word, God's call, always brings light into our lives to heal us, strengthen us, encourage us, and guide us. It breaks through our darkness, our sinfulness, our confusion. It opens up new horizons and gives us new hope. It shows us the way. I am the light of the world, Jesus told the crowds. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Caravaggio brings another surprising level to the meaning of this gesture. The position of Christ's hand can strike us as curious. It is kind of pointing, but it also seems to be relaxed, even languid. Why? Scholars have pointed out that Christ's gesture in this painting mirrors exactly another gesture in another painting. The hand of Adam at the moment when God the Father creates him, as depicted by the great Renaissance painter Michelangelo on the Sistine ceiling. That painting is also in Rome, and Caravaggio would have been familiar with it. The exact parallel cannot be mere coincidence. In fact, Caravaggio's message is crystal clear. If our original vocation consists in being called into existence, in being created, then every subsequent vocation, the vocation to follow Christ, who is the new Adam through whom the world is redeemed and recreated, or to follow him more closely, the vocation to a particular state of life, the vocation to put our talents at the service of the kingdom in a particular way, every subsequent call from God in our lives is like a new creation, a new beginning, a new chapter in the adventure of our lives. And neither is it a coincidence that Christ's hand is located directly under the window, because Caravaggio has placed within the window a dramatic and highly prominent cross. Jesus redeemed the world through his voluntary suffering and death on a cross. His passion and resurrection were the beginning of the new creation through grace of this fallen world. Whenever he calls us, however he calls us, he will always call us to follow him along the way of the cross, dying to our own selfishness and sin in order to be renewed by his grace, just as he died on Calvary and rose again from the dead. Caravaggio's vision of the calling of St. Matthew offers a striking visual contemplation of what a vocation really is. And since all of us have a vocation, at least three vocations in fact, Let's take some time now to enter into that contemplation and see what the Lord wants to tell us. The following questions and quotations may help your meditation. Questions for personal reflection and group discussion. What aspects of this painting especially move me? Why? What might God want to say to me through them? What is my attitude towards the cross in my life? How can I carry my crosses with greater faith, hope and love? How is God calling me in this season of my life? What is he asking of me and how am I responding? Which figure in the painting 
can I most easily relate to and why? Three quotations to aid your meditation. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the customs post. He said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat with Jesus and his disciples. The Pharisees saw this and said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? He heard this and said, Those who are well do not need a physician, but the sick do. Go and learn the meaning of the words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. As he passed by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting their nets into the sea. They were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. Then they abandoned their nets and followed him. He walked along a little farther and saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They too were in a boat mending their nets. Then he called them, so they left their father Zebedee in the boat, along with the hired men, and followed him. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, honor your father and your mother. He replied and said to him, Teacher, all of these I have observed from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You are lacking in one thing. Go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At that statement, his face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Conference, how to discern your vocation. We know that in spiritual terms, the word vocation refers to any and all callings from God that occur in our lives, and especially the three that we all share, the call into existence, the call to follow Christ, and the call to serve Christ's kingdom in a particular state of life, clerical, lay, single or married, or consecrated. But even so, most Catholics tend to use the word vocation to refer primarily to the call to the priesthood or the consecrated life. When people show concern at a shortage of vocations, for example, those states of life are what they're usually talking about. That use of the word is understandable because the most common vocation in the church is the vocation to the lay state of life. The majority of Catholics are called to live out their Christian discipleship and mission as married or single lay people. They build up the kingdom of God right in the middle of their everyday working lives. As Jesus described in the Gospels, they are like the salt of the earth and the light of the world and the little bit of yeast that leavens the whole lump of dough by being mixed right into it. A smaller number of Catholics are called to serve Christ's kingdom in the priesthood and consecrated life. At the risk of oversimplifying, theirs is a vocation 
to keep the salt salty, the light fueled, and the yeast fervent. And for the priests and consecrated persons who serve as full-time missionaries to people who have never yet heard the gospel, their vocation is, in a sense, to make more salt, light, and yeast for the world by preaching and teaching Christ for the first time. Comparisons like that have their advantages and disadvantages, but the main point here is to understand that the different states of life are meant to complement each other in the life and work of the Church. Whatever our state of life, we are each called to follow Christ with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to become saints in the process. Although it is true that most spiritual writers consider the priestly and consecrated states of life, because of their intrinsic nature and structure, as providing an especially propitious atmosphere for growth and holiness, along with some special sacrifices and difficulties. But since the priesthood and the consecrated life are less common, and because they both involve a Christian commitment that is a more radical sign of contradiction to the world around us, especially through their charism of celibacy, these usually come to mind first when we speak about vocations. This is especially the case when young Catholics start trying to discover which state of life God is calling them to. They often ask, for example, whether or not they have a vocation. Of course they do. We all do. In fact, we have at least three vocations, as we have seen throughout this retreat guide. So the real task for us as we continue following Christ more and more closely isn't to discover whether or not we have a vocation, but to discern which state of life God is calling us to. Since the more common vocation is the lay state of life, that is usually the default position. Most healthy human beings feel a natural desire to engage in meaningful work in the world, to get married, and to form a family of their own. These are natural desires. When we follow them prayerfully, seeking to love and serve God and our neighbors through them, they can become suffused with grace. After all, marriage itself is one of the seven sacraments. When that happens, these natural desires become, through Christ, with Him and in Him, a path to supernatural holiness, fruitfulness, and fulfillment. It's also important to remember that since these are natural desires, they don't just disappear when God calls someone to the priesthood or consecrated life. In other words, even when God calls someone to the priesthood or consecrated life, that person will still feel a natural attraction to the beauty of marriage and family life. It's just that they will also begin to feel an interest in another state of life as well. That's why hearing and following God's call takes discernment. As we mature, humanly and spiritually, there usually comes a time when the thought of the priesthood or consecrated life pops into the head of a young Catholic man or woman. This can happen spontaneously, from within, when we simply find ourselves thinking about and maybe feeling an attraction towards that state of life. It can also happen surprisingly, from the outside, when, for example, someone who knows us and loves us asks if we have ever thought about becoming a priest or consecrating our lives completely to the Lord. This suggestion can spark an internal reflection about our third vocation, or even an internal drama that involves a combination of excitement, confusion, and fear. Whatever its origin, when the thought and possibility of a vocation to the priesthood or consecrated life appears on our internal radar screen, we need to pay attention to it. These states of life do not correspond to natural desires, as does the lay state of life. Rather, they correspond to our vision of faith. In a sense, they are intrinsically supernatural. This is why they are often difficult to discern. Where is this thought, this desire, this possibility coming from? Is it really an invitation from God? Is God calling me to follow him as a priest or consecrated person? When the idea becomes present in our hearts and minds, we should not ignore these questions. Rather, we need to ask them honestly and humbly, and then calmly but intelligently seek to answer them. That's what vocational discernment is all about. And how do we do that? By taking four steps. Whether you are currently discerning your vocation, or whether you find yourself in a position to help others in their discernment, understanding these four steps will be a huge help. The first step 
is the foundation of all the other steps, but it's often overlooked. We can sum it up in four words. Be generously faithful today. Our call comes from God. And so the better we know God, the deeper our relationship with Him goes, the more clearly we will be able to discern His voice in our hearts. That's why the first essential step for fruitful vocational discernment is simply being faithful to my friendship with Christ today. This touches many dimensions. It means intentionally developing our prayer life, both through living the sacraments deeply and through a sincere commitment to advance in personal prayer. It means intentionally growing in virtue, becoming more like Christ in how I relate to myself, others, and the world around me. This requires getting to know my own selfish tendencies and working prudently to keep them in check and eventually to replace them with Christ-like virtue. It also means seeking to embrace God's will in my day-to-day -day life through obeying the commandments and the teachings of the church, through creatively engaging in the church's mission of evangelization according to my possibilities, and through lovingly fulfilling the duties of my current state of life as a student, a professional, a son or daughter, a brother or sister, a friend, and a member of a parish, and any other responsibilities I may have. In a sense, the first step to discover our third vocation, which state of life God is calling us to, is to live faithfully and energetically our second vocation, to follow Christ more and more closely in the here and now of our daily lives. The second step to discern whether God is calling us to the priesthood or consecrated life can be summed up in three words. Keep moving forward. Sometimes a young person will acknowledge the possibility of a call to the priesthood or consecrated life, but won't do anything concrete about it. Instead, they just wait for a definitive, dramatic sign from God. They may even agonize over the uncertainty they experience, but they don't actually make any move in response to it. Yet, a calling to the priesthood or the consecrated life flows from God's love for us. It is an invitation to follow Him more closely and serve His kingdom more freely. And so He will never give it to us as a done deal. That would take away the element of friendship and relationship. It would make us programmed robots. And that's not what God wants. And so, when the thought, desire, or possibility comes to mind, we have to do something about it. Maybe visit a seminary. Maybe go on a vocational discernment retreat. Maybe visit a religious order or go on a mission. Maybe go and talk to a priest about how he discerned his vocation. Maybe start teaching catechism class or volunteering to help the sisters in their apostolate of caring for the elderly. Eventually, maybe the next step will be to begin the actual application process or to join a candidacy program. We have to keep moving. Just as couples seeking to marry go out on dates during their courtship, we have to keep taking concrete, active steps to inform ourselves about and to experience the kind of life that we are discerning. God works within those efforts to give us graces of light and strength. The third step we need to take to discern whether God is calling us to the priesthood or consecrated life can be summed up in two words. Get help. We need to have someone trustworthy that we can talk to about what's happening in our souls. Someone who can help expand our limited point of view and help recognize how God may be leading us. They can help us identify some of the objective factors that have to be present in a vocation to the priesthood or consecrated life, like physical and psychological health and sincerity of intention. They can also help us live the first two steps of discernment more fruitfully, guiding us in our prayer life and growth in virtue, and suggesting concrete ways to continue exploring a possible priestly or consecrated call. This can be a spiritual director, a confessor, a mentor, or simply an older friend whose wisdom, knowledge, and love for God and the Church we respect. It's more useful to have one person in this role than many. In fact, going around telling everyone and their cousin that we are discerning a call to the priesthood or consecrated life is usually not a good idea. But we do need to be talking about it with someone. The fourth step for discerning our third vocation can be summed up in one word. Ask. Ask God, calmly and sincerely, but persistently, to give us the light we need to know where He's calling us 
and ask him to give us the strength we need to follow wherever he leads. How could Jesus not answer that prayer? He is the first one who wants us to discover our path to holiness and fruitfulness. He is the one who called us into existence and then called us to become his follower. How could he not want to show us what state of life he is calling us towards? If we do our part by sincerely opening our hearts to hear God's call and following these four steps, he will certainly do his part. Here's how St. Paul put it. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. These four steps are how we can do our part in the great adventure of discovering our third vocation. Be faithful today. Keep moving forward. Get help and ask. If we follow these steps, we can rest assured that God will gradually strengthen in our hearts a conviction about where he is calling us. He will never make it so clear that we're forced to say yes, and he will never make it so easy that we don't have to be courageous to accept it. But he will make it clear enough, and he will give us courage enough. And that's when discernment has to give way to decision. As Jesus himself put it, for many are called, but few are chosen. And whenever we generously decide to follow where God is leading, a new chapter in the indescribable adventure of Christian discipleship is ready to be written. The following personal questionnaire will help you apply these general observations to your specific situation. Personal questionnaire for those who are discerning their state of life. When and how did my interest in the priesthood or consecrated life start? Could God have been at work in that? How strong is my interest in the priesthood or consecrated life? Has the strength of my interest changed over time? Does it fluctuate? What factors are at work in that? How apt are my natural talents and gifts for the state of life that I feel interested in? When I picture myself in that state of life, what feelings are stirred up in my soul? How would I describe those feelings? Is my interest in this state of life truly my interest, or is it mixed in with wanting to please other people? Is my interest in this state of life linked to any fears and or the desire to escape from something? Am I expecting absolute clarity from God? How willing am I to accept if God simply makes it clear enough? How responsibly am I currently following the first step of vocational discernment? Be generously faithful today. How responsibly am I following the second step? Keep moving forward. What is the concrete next step that I am taking? How responsibly am I getting help, and how consistently, but calmly, 
Am I asking God for light and strength? Can I improve in these two steps in some way? Personal questionnaire for those who have already discerned their state of life. How consistently do I pray for more vocations to the priesthood and consecrated life? In accordance with Christ's conjunction, he said to them, The harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. Luke chapter 10 verse 2. What have I done recently to encourage young people to actively discern their calling? What more could I be doing? When was the last time I asked a young man or woman if they had ever felt that God was calling them to the priesthood or consecrated life? If I got to know a young man or woman who seemed to have the spiritual sensitivity and the human quality necessary for the priestly or consecrated life, how comfortable would I be sharing that thought with them? How sincerely do I value priestly and consecrated vocations in the life of the church? How do I express that? For further reading, Peter on the Shore, Vocation in Scripture and in Real Life, by Father Anthony Bannon, L.C., Gift and Mystery, by St. John Paul II, Navigating the Interior Life, by Dan Burke, a Memory for Wonders by Veronica Namoyo Legulav. Discerning the Will of God by Father Timothy Gallagher. If you like this retreat, please help support future retreat guides by making a donation at rcspirituality.org. Retreat guides are a service of Regnum Christi and the Legionaries of Christ. Regnumchristi.org, Legionofchrist.org. Retreat guides are produced by Coronation coronationmedia.com